Hey everyone, my name's Abraxas. I'm a strategist, thought leader, and creative, and you're listening to the fifth week of IWC Schaffhausen's weekly Clubhouse podcast series, Creators Time. IWC are a luxury watch brand based from Switzerland who have decided to partner with me for this amazing six-part series. This week, we're talking about change, finding yourself, and the power of community with Stephanie Simon. A reminder that all thoughts and opinions are of those speaking and do not necessarily reflect IWCs. Well, hello, Steph. (laughs) Well, hello, Abraxas. Stephanie, I'm going to give you a quick introduction here because it wouldn't be right if I didn't. Okay, here we go. Builder of communities, traveler and agent of change. Stephanie has a very unusual career. Playing D1 basketball and studying law at the prestigious University of Oklahoma and then immediately getting a job as an associate attorney. She then navigated into the banking industry working with JP Morgan, but this isn't where she stayed. Through trial and error and her years of travel to a myriad of countries, Stephanie has touched multiple disciplines and fields of work throughout the last 10 years, pushing herself to find out what she wants to do and most importantly, how she wants to do it. She is currently the head of community at Clubhouse. So welcome, Steph. It's a pleasure to have you here. Seriously. Oh, the pleasure is mine. And I actually sort of love the fact that we're finally in the same country at the moment because I'm in, yes, I'm in the United Kingdom. Speaking of traveling, I am, I am here out in the countryside of Oxfordshire um, at a business of fashion conference. And I'm delighted to take the next hour to talk to you. So thank you so much for the introduction. That was, that was a pretty stellar one as, as far as introductions go. So thank you. That's what I like to hear. You know, I do my research. (laughs) So before we get any big questions out of the way, I always do a quick fire round. uh, Keep you on your toes. This is going to be the hardest part of this entire thing, Stephanie. So I hope you're ready. I'm ready. All right, here we go. Quick fire. All right. Um, I'm going to have to probe a little bit if I don't like the, if I don't like the quick fire. So off the rip, Michael Jackson or the Beatles? Beatles. Ooh, Why? I mean, it's so funny that you say that. You know, the Spotify has released our look backs on the air. And I am in the top 5% of the Beatles listeners as it is. So I can actually prove that I'm a massive Beatles fan. Um, You know, I think it's some combination of they are such like the building blocks of rock and roll. And they represent so much about being an, you know, a brilliant artist and sort of walking this line of like, you know, intellect and their lyrics and the tempo changes and the amount of influences that have come all around the world from them, but also just like simple, simple lyrics, like here comes the sun, you know? I don't know. I love them. The Beatles are some of my, that's probably one of my favorite bands of all time. So good first question. All right. All right. If you had to pick, what's better to you, Thanksgiving dinner or Christmas dinner? Oh, hmm. You know, in my uh, Lebanese household growing up, they were pretty similar. But there is something really special, I think, about a Thanksgiving dinner because um, I tend to share it with different types of people, not just my family, because I'll rotate in and out Thanksgiving with family or with friends. So I think that's kind of special. 
Okay, okay, I like that. Yeah. I had a, a really bad uh, first experience at Thanksgiving. Um, oh, no. I didn't realize. No, no, it was fine. It was fine. It's just like your Sunday roast. That should not be a bad experience. I'm like, I'm sorry. Every Sunday is Thanksgiving in England, as far as I'm concerned, with a Sunday roast. Facts. <laughs> I basically, I can't remember what it was called, but there were like yams at the bottom. I thought it was oh. potatoes on top, but oh. it wasn't potatoes. It was marshmallows. And I took the, <laughs> I took the most to of America, it on my- we put sugar on anything, baby. Come on. <laughs> so yeah, I had to like get through that without being disrespectful. But yeah, it was, it was, it was a struggle. All right. Last question of the quick fire round here. You have to, you've traveled everywhere. If you had to pick one destination, you are going to be there for three years minimum and you cannot leave. What country Ooh. are you going to? Oh man. Well, you give, you're giving me a country at least, not like a city. So um i'm gonna go with italy i'm gonna go with italy that's uh i love there's so many different parts of italy i love i lived in um, you know outside of milan for a bit worked in milan for a bit love rome it's probably one of my favorite cities in the world um yeah italia Viva all, Italia. Right, all right steph let's get into the meaty section of this all right i hope you're ready I hope you're warmed up now <laughs> warmed up i'm intrigued and i'm sure there are a number of us that are intrigued steph like You've done a few things, but I want to kind of start the genesis of this. Tell us a little bit about your time at university. That's going to be my sort of my, the genesis of this conversation, because you played basketball and you were studying law. What was your aim in life at that point? Like, What were you trying to do? Ooh. At uni, um, let's see, I was, I don't know if I had much aim. I think, to be honest, I was from a really small town in western Oklahoma. And I, I had a vision, not necessarily linear. I had a vision of sort of getting out, but I didn't know what that meant. But funny enough, I stayed at home for you know, university. I went to undergrad at Oklahoma and played basketball and then stayed and went to law school. And I think, you know, I probably wouldn't admit this at the time, but I was doing anything I could to develop some sense of pedigree that I did not grow up with. Um, you know, growing up in the middle of nowhere, but reading about these, you know, boarding schools and amazing universities and all sort of like all this, what seemed to be like lives of excellence. And that was not what I necessarily grew up around. And I think I had a real hang up about it. And so everything I was doing was not necessarily to, you know, out of my desires or interests, but more what would sound good so that I could get to the next thing. I feel you. And I can definitely say, I definitely felt the same. I have a really weird yeah. story where I we I, I grew up near a school called Harrow, um, Harrow Harrow College, and they would have these really interesting hats, and we would laugh at them. We'd be like, "Oh man, that's so funny!" And I will never forget the day when I realized that that was a, an extremely expensive school to go to. That this is where a lot of like the prime ministers and you know people that ended up in finance and banking they all kind of went through that school or another one called Eton. And for the oh, first yes. time ever, I had like academic envy. I was like, "Well, mm. what if I want to do that? Do I do I have that option?" So interesting you say that. Um, thank you for sharing. Yeah, that's what we're here for. So you're studying, you're playing basketball. Quick question about basketball. Yes. Clearly you're an athlete. My question is this, did you learn anything through the pursuit of athletics? Um, of course. Not just say in the, in the pursuit of athletics, but really, really pushing yourself um, past many points of uh, comfort and, and right into and on past to like hell uh, at often, you know, oftentimes, especially when you are playing at a, you know, really high level or elite level. Um, and I think that 
that more, and I realize that more as I've gotten older, that my tolerance for discomfort is very, very high. Um, and I, and I mean that that could be physical, that could be emotional, that could be sort of work situations or relationship situations. And, and so funny enough, that was almost something I had to be, uh, then unlearn, which was sort of this idea of like, be kinder, be gentler to myself, you know, be more in tune with when, when I'm already at the point where I'm like, Oh God, this is terrible. Then it's really bad. And I need to like really listen. Um, and so I actually, that's sort of maybe an unexpected answer, but I think that was something that I, that I did learn, which is to be tough, you know? And then that turned out to be a very difficult thing that I actually had to unlearn. Stephanie, you are, I feel like I'm talking to myself. On right now. <laughs> <laughs> this is seriously weird. I would say exactly the same thing. I learned how to be tough. I learned that if you yeah. break a bone, you just got to crush the cast up a little bit so you can keep playing. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and then having to unlearn that because it's not the healthiest way to go through everything. It's a great skill to have when you need to tap into it, but you don't need to lift the car up every single day. Sure. All right. So you've done your undergraduate degree, you've done some law, you decide that you want to then go into finance. Like what's the driving decision behind that? Don't you love how it seems like when you're reading a piece of paper and like a chronological biography of someone, you're like, and then this happened, but then there's always subtext, you know, or stuff that's not written there. Exactly. Um, Right. So the, I think the subtext was woke up, was living in Atlanta, Georgia, um, married, had a house, uh, three bedroom house, dog. BMW, all the things that you're supposed to have, but at a very young age, which was 28. And I sort of had a, a moment where like, this is not my life and this is not what I want. And then for the first time, I started making decisions based on what I actually wanted or what I thought I might want. So I started talking to a bunch of, I actually got a headhunter call from Goldman Sachs and they were looking for someone for private banking. I didn't know what the hell that meant, but I knew that it was going to lead to eight weeks living in New York, which I knew was also going to be the catalyst for probably the end of my marriage. And I didn't take the job with Goldman, but I did take a job with JP Morgan. And I went to New York for training for eight weeks, and then it never went back. And that was my transition to Steph Simon, private banker at JP Morgan. Oh, do you still have any of your business cards? That's the real question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Do you know what? That's that's super, super cool. I know what those eight weeks are like, having done those eight weeks myself mm-hmm. in New York. And they are messy. Like, it's tough. <laughs> it's like an eight-week-long interview where you're really just trying to work things out. You're figuring out how to dress. You're figuring out how to speak. And you're trying to also figure out what the hell you actually do and why you're being paid so much to do it. So Yes, I think all you. of that is true. But you're also, if you're me, I'd only been in New York one time in my life prior. I'd only had one significant relationship in my life, which was my husband at the time, which was who I'd been with since I was 18. And I was sort of sorting through a bunch of other personal things in addition to exactly what you said, sort of the 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 gauntlet that they run you through, which is both designed to educate you and prepare you to be a banker, but also a bit designed to sort of see how tough you are. And, you know, very similar to almost like athletic, you know, preseason training. Um, so, yeah, it was a lot. That was, it was, you said the word messy and you have no idea how much that resonates because it was a very messy eight weeks for me. So you survive your eight weeks and you're there. And how long do you end up staying in finance? Like you've had this original allure, like, all right, cool, New York, I get to do, I get to kind of be me and figure out what, what I am. Mm-hmm. At what point are you like, you finance? Um, this isn't really the thing I 
thought it was. I mean, I think it's actually surprising to a lot of people that um, my job at JP Morgan was the longest, longest job I've ever held, um, which was five years. And I, it was a slow burn in the sense that, you know, as I was sort of metamorphosizing and becoming me in New York City, which included a couple like costume changes, i.e. <laughs> pretty radical appearance adjustments, cut off all my hair, dyed it bleach blonde, had a mohawk at J.P. Morgan, which is also just a fun thing in and of itself. Um, you know, as I, as those layers were sort of peeling off, I think I was coming to terms with, you know, another, what my next chapter may or, or, or maybe should be. But at the same time, I loved my job. I really loved being in finance. And like I said, I think that surprises a lot of people. But I think the, you know, the, the, the vertical or sort of the slice of finance that I was in um, resonated with me because it was about people. It wasn't about companies. You know, I was in corporate finance. I wasn't in the investment bank. I was in the private bank, which meant that while my job, yes, was to sort of fin- sell financial products and give people estate advice and, you know, help people think through, you know, what collateral we might be able to take and how much we might be able to lend them. It was at the end of the day, connecting with people and knowing them very, them and their families very, very closely because I was their, you know, consigliere and their confidant as well as their banker. So I really loved the job. As I became more in touch, I think with, Maybe the fully self-expressed stuff, I think it was just going to be really tough for me to stay at J.P. Morgan. And, and it, in fact, it was tough for me to stay at J.P. Morgan. Okay, so you've spoken about you working in finance as sort of, you know, grueling. <sighs> great way to cut your teeth, great way to learn, great way to be under pressure. And I think your sports background probably paid you such a good deal of sort of preparation for that. Um, it's really funny looking back on it now. I look at it and a lot of the guys that I would work with uh, people I worked with, sorry, would like lacrosse players, basketball players. Everybody had played some sort of sport and was used to working on a team. So um, kudos to you. I'm kind of thinking through this way more than I have done in the past. So thank you. So a question. It seems that, you know, while others are kind of scared of change, right? And it may be at the start of all of this, you were scared of change too. But mm-hmm. you maybe got to a point where you were just super like, all right, this isn't what I thought it was going to be. Um, and something has to give here. So when you started embarking on change, you know, and all these different careers that you'd worked in, have you found that there's been one consistent truth? Is there one thing that allows you to work in finance and allows you to work in fashion and allows you to be a D1 hockey player and allows you to be head of community at Clubhouse? Is there one red thread that you can lean on every single time you find yourself in change? Um, I mean, someone is paying attention. I, you're right. I was not always this sort of like brave brave face gal. Um, I think, like I said, it, it took a real realization that, you know, if I didn't change something that I, I was going to wake up deeply uh, unhappy and, and not with, not as I dreamed my life would be. And so I think, you know, when that awakening happened, I think then the change, the change becomes a bit addictive at that point, which is that, you know, there's a big world out there and there's, a you know, billions of people out there. And what a shame if I don't meet as many as possible and play as many different roles as possible and test my skill sets in as many different ways as possible. And so I think the red thread is just like discovery and curiosity um, and this ability to really flex the range that I knew from an early age that I had. 
you know, I always, yes, I was an athlete growing up, but I was also a ballet dancer for 15 years. And I also, you know, was student council president. And I also really loved, you know, I had such broad, diverse, like interest levels and I could, you know, I loved, you know, playing dress up in my grandmother's gowns and playing with Barbies, but also really getting in the dirt and being a tomboy. So I knew I had this range. And I also knew that like, whatever this path that my life was going to continue to lead would have changed because that's something that I really deeply crave um, now, certainly. But I think even then I did, I just wasn't brave enough to really embark on the hero's journey. But now I'm fully in it. So here we are. <laughs> and there's no stopping you now. Yeah. <laughs> I like that. I like that. So travel. Travel is one of these things that I love. I hold it so dear to my heart. But what I found is, well, just by looking at your Instagram and doing a dig around that you are definitely into traveling. So I've read all these quotes about traveling. Say it's the cure for ignorance. It's fatal to prejudice. So from your travels, right? And I'm assuming at this point, you've traveled to probably well over 20 countries. What does traveling mean to you? I think I had a fascination with it early on. Again, I sort of alluded to this earlier about playing dress up in my grandmother's clothes. But when I was a young girl, um, again, uh, growing up in small town, Oklahoma, um, we actually didn't travel a lot as a family um, at all. Like our, our vacations were maybe to like Gulf Shores, Alabama. You know, we never, I'd never been, I graduated, let's put it this way, I graduated from high school and had never been to New York, uh, LA, Chicago, uh, any other major city really in the United States. And the first major city I went to was Paris when I studied abroad after my freshman year in college. And again, this sounds really similar to the question you asked me earlier, which is while I, while I hadn't done it yet, while I hadn't embarked on change, while I hadn't taken risks, like it was, it was just brewing inside of me from an early age. My grandmother would travel around the world. She's a very eccentric woman, um, you know, sort of married three times, proposed to infinite number of times. And she would bring me back a doll from all these countries. And I still to this day have a collection of over you know, hundreds of dolls um, that she would bring me that was sort of usually in the country's dress or somewhere indicating where they were from. And it was weird because, to, like I said, to this day, I have them sort of all boxed away um, as a representation of like her life and the travel she went to. And it created a real longing in me. And I think travel always represented this very glamorous life. Um, and you know, some of those things are embedded at a young age and don't really leave you. And so I think to this day, like travel very much represents um, all the things that you said, really, you know, breaking down. I was blessed to have really, you know, tolerant and edgy, well-educated parents in a small town in Oklahoma, which is unusual. Um, but at the same time, um, I think I had a lot of biases growing up that I didn't realize I had until I started to travel more. And I think not only traveling, but living, you know, I lived... I've lived in London the last three years until we moved back this year. Um, you know, I, I've lived in Paris for a short amount of time. I lived in Italy for a short amount of time. Um, I, I just think that the world is so big. I don't know. That's the only way I can describe it. Like the world is so big and it almost feels like it's our obligation, you know, and this is a very privileged comment. Um, and so I will acknowledge that. But I think given that I sort of have been a very fortunate in my life, it feels like it's my obligation to sort of, stand face to face with as many different types of people that exist on this planet. I think it, and not just because I sort of, uh, this great educator or sort of breaking down barriers of intolerance, but because like, wow, we, we all share this like crazy thing, which is getting to be a human on this planet, 
yeah, we're all so different, but we all have the same human condition. Like I said, it's, it's something that's like a real deeper started as, like I said, this sort of glamorous idea, but the more I do it and the more I come to contact with the different types of people, it's really just seeking and affirming all the time. Seeking, okay, different types of humans, affirming. Yep, we're the same. Okay, seeking, different types of humans. Yep, okay, we're the same. Like, I don't know, there's something really magical, I think, about that. I completely agree with you. It is, I, there were certain situations I found myself in, in the world. One of them, I was in Kyoto, Japan, at an event called Gion Matsuri. It's like a summer festival. And I will never forget the fact that like the, all these people have lives and you know they speak a different language. At the at, Japanese was much better then, but I was able to speak to them and it was just the most empowering moment for me to realize that all these people have these different isms about them. And it was just great to learn, to sit there and learn, right? The only, the only regret I have on that trip is that I didn't bring somebody with me. So when all these crazy things were happening, I could kind of say like, this isn't normal. Because everybody in Japan was like, well, this is so normal to us. I'd be like, no, you need to understand <laughs> that this, where I am from, is not normal. But yeah, brilliant place. And travel, you know, the cure to ignorance. I think the more you travel, the, the honestly, the smarter you get. You know, bigotry has no place in your heart if you're, you know, if you're a traveler. No, yeah, I think you're exactly right. But I think there's also, like I said, just the magic, just the magic of travel. Like it doesn't. Sometimes it doesn't have to be with purpose of, uh, you know, purpose of thought. I think just getting lost, going out and getting lost with people that you don't know is kind of usually one of my objectives. <laughs> travel yes i'm with it i'm with it i'm with it i'm joining you on your next uh, endeavor <laughs> i mean i'm happy to pick up strangers along the way let's go <laughs> perfect so whether you believe it or not stephanie i think a lot of people are going to look at your career and see you as a blueprint for their own one there are so many of us that are a little unhappy. And, you know, there's that quote, you know, the majority of men, and I'll say the majority of humans, live a life of quiet desperation. They are crying mm. out for help, but don't quite know how to help themselves. And with everything you've shared and the way you've navigated your career, what career advice could you give to somebody who is trying to navigate change and transition? I read a quote, I mean, Virgil Abloh, I think it, for many, has been on a lot of people's minds right now. Um, and I read a quote that he had recently, something he said, which is... Uh, you know, if someone, if someone asked him what he would tell to his younger self, he said, the struggle is the whole point. And I think that, you know, if I pass on career advice, if there is any, I don't know, I don't know, literally my career is such a, some people say, oh, yeah, career, like your career path, career ladder. I'm like, mine was a jungle gym. Um, I think, I think my advice would just be that, you know, it, sometimes we put so much weight on each decision that we make and each career move and that this thing has to lead to the next thing and I can't be out of a job for this long because then what will they say? Or I won't be hireable or I can't. Like I think we create the cage that I think a lot of us continue to sit in um, either because of you know, perception or maybe what other people tell them. And, and by the way, I think the best thing anyone can do is surround themselves with people that are cheerleaders and not naysayers, you know, like, Oh no, you shouldn't do that. Or, Oh, I can't. If it like, I remember so many times when I would tell like a friend, like, Oh, I think it's time for the Jay Morgan. Like, yes, of course it is. Who should we introduce you to? I think anytime I have like, I start to get a wild hair and I share that, you know, I'm very fortunate. I think that I've, you know, my community and the people I surround myself are 
are all seekers as well, which I think really helps. Um, but man, as far as just like didactic career advice, I think it's more about just um, knowing that your journey is going to be your own, but that at some point no one can set you off on it. <laughs> you have to set yourself out on it. And, and, the, and the stumbles along the way, because inherently there will be, and we didn't cover this because we just didn't get into it, but I've had many careers and I've also been fired twice, you know, and I think that I've made some definite bad decisions. Ones that seem super sexy on my resume. I don't necessarily have to go into them, but like they seem like super sexy decisions. And I got there and I was like, what in the hell did I do? This is a terrible decision. But guess what? You make a different decision and you get out of it. I think, I think people tend to put a lot of emphasis on, you know, decision as if, as if it's final. And I, um, I just don't subscribe to that. And I think that that, Again, a very privileged position, um, but but I do think that we should just all give ourselves a little bit more grace and a little bit more permission um, to stumble because I think, as Virgil Lebo said, I think the struggle is the whole point. Yeah, uh, and long live Virgil. Uh, what a loss to, to mankind. Um, there was a really interesting thing where he puts a can, like a crumbled can. He said, if I put this in an art gallery, right, and, you know, around white walls, people would see this as a piece of art. Mm -hmm. But if I left this in my garage, just you know, in a corner, somebody would throw it out and assume it's trash. Be careful where you put yourself, right? Sometimes it's not about designing the item, the can. Sometimes it's about designing the room. And I kind of sat there and was like, wow. Wow, <laughs> yeah. All right, one last big question for you, Stephanie. So as, as the head of community at Clubhouse and as somebody who is an avid burner, yes, you go to Burning Man every year, I hear. I am. <laughs> I see. Proud burner. Proud burner. There we go. There we go. Having my first this year, so really looking forward to that. Well, next year, I should say. So as an avid burner and somebody who's the head of community at Clubhouse, one, what do you feel that you've learned from going to Burning Man numerous times? And two, what does community mean to you? I think Burning Man for me has been the largest, the greatest catalyst um, for peeling off my layers and unlearning, you know, a lot of the, uh, someone, so I, we, I'm at this conference, like I said, and one of the women today said something really brilliant, which is that we've sort of handed this script and we have to eventually decide to sort of go off script. And I think that, um, Burning Man, both because of the people there, but maybe just the space, um, I, I really started to go off script for the first time there. Um, that was my third year uh, in finance that I went to Burning Man for the first time. And wow, uh, just everything from like, I remember this is such a funny anecdote, but I got there and I, you know, had it, my map printed out of all the camps of and the people I was going to go visit because I, you know, I, when I had made a big list, if you've never been to Burning Man, let me please tell you that the first thing they, you arrive, they roll you in the dust. And then they hand you this sort of manual. It's almost like adult summer camp of all the different talks and all the different things going out. And so me being the very diligent Stephanie that I am, I like mark it up and I start to make a schedule and I get on my bike and I start like riding out of the dust and I encounter these two guys who are nice enough and I have a little dance with them. And I was like, oh, sorry, sorry guys. You know, gotta go. I gotta go. Like I'm going to. And then one guy stopped me and he was like, you're so busy. Where do you have to go? And I was like, I, I kind of looked at him stunned for a second. And then his whole point is like, you can be present here with us. And yes, of course you can leave when you want to, 
but like this is not the place to sort of re to enforce you know the schedule that you sort of am putting on yourself in the real world in the default world and i think for me like wow that was such a what the hell are you doing stephanie why am i enforcing like oh i've got to go here and then i've got to that that's such a minor lesson i think the bigger lessons <sighs> yeah just um so much about permission and and sort of allowing myself like well i hadn't i was like i said i was a ballet dancer for 15 15 years but i hadn't danced in a really long time certainly through uh basketball and law school and all that and i don't know why i just i wasn't i wasn't a raver i wasn't any of those things and i think it was like a someone unlocked something in me and all of a sudden you know the the dance was so primal and i was just moving so freely and i wasn't so worried about like how i looked or what i was it was just like immediately i was this primal being that i really loved i was like oh i really love myself at burning man and i think that was one of the biggest things probably one of the first times in my life that i really loved myself because i loved how i was out there If you're enjoying this conversation, you'll really enjoy the other IWC podcast, Partners in Time. Hosts Chris Granger and Paul Ripke take turns to interview some of the most interesting and successful people on the planet. From Formula One driver Lewis Hamilton to prophetic photographer Missan Haram. Go subscribe to IWC Spotify to listen to even more amazing conversations. Now back to Creators Time. So we have the beam of light herself, Semha Nagasa. So thank you for coming up, Semha. What question do you have for Stephanie? It's been such a dope conversation um, just to learn more about you and, you know, with your own words. Um, and you talked about deconditioning yourself um, from having like high tolerance for discomfort and always pushing yourself in these highly demanding situations. Um, and oftentimes when we change or pivot out of something, we can then see our patterns and our behaviors more clearly. So having gone through so much of that change and finding yourself and your voice over the years, I'd like to know um, what is your favorite thing about Stephanie? Like what is your superpower oh. and how do you nurture it? Well, that is a great question. My favorite thing about me, and this, this actually just came up um, last week with my partner and I were doing a little bit of some deep dive together that every relationship goes through every now and then. Um, my favorite thing about me is when I am very childlike and playful and just really raw and I bring up my partner because that is by far what he and I connect most on and I think that sort of when I'm in my heart space and I'm you know just light that's the best way I can put it and you are the queen you're the you are the beam of light so you understand this but when I am emitting light wow I love that stuff I really love her she's amazing when I'm in my head too much and I'm sort of second guessing or I'm really thinking trying to you know think through of course I, I pride myself on being intelligent and smart but when I'm in my body and I am in my heart and I am playful and I am just radiating light I love that stuff I love that thank you so much Steph thank <laughs> you so much that's great don't question somehow thank you and don't respond Steph 
All right, we have Solar. Solar, what question do you have, Steph? Well, I guess I'll keep with the Burning Man question, but kind of through the lens of Clubhouse. Um, and I'll just quickly say, I don't want to center myself, but I'll quickly say, like, when I move into a new app or a new social media space, I don't actually bring my old communities with me because it becomes an experiment about how I can be seen differently or how I can reinvent myself or all the ways that I do that at Burning Man. And specifically, I didn't bring Burning Man community into this space or invite familiarity into this space. And so my question for you is, especially being kind of so visible here and having the reference of, of that reinvention on the playa, um, when you kind of intentionally became more and more aware of community, how did you approach old community in this new space? I think it's a great question. And I think that Interestingly, Clubhouse felt like an opportunity to reconnect with so many of my old communities because um, because I moved between so many jobs and so many cities. And uh, I'm not great, admittedly, I'm not great with keeping up with people. But that didn't that doesn't to me mean ever there's any love lost. And I think some people translate that differently. But for me, Clubhouse was this. And really the biggest reason why I wanted to take the role was I found this, I, oh my God, this is an amazing opportunity for me to knit together so many of these people in one place that made sense for everyone. Because like there wasn't a single person that I could think back to. I was like, oh, I don't want them to either know me or know this community. I was like, no, 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 no. If I've, what was a reason I collected all these people along the way of not ultimately to all bring, you know, bring it back together and really get to flex my chops as you know, some people call it sort of a community builder. I'm more of a community community alchemist. I've had so many different types of people that I've come into contact with, and I was so excited to bring them here and bring them together. And I think that that's the magic of Clubhouse. I think that, you know, the way that our, so, you know, your sort of your follograph was new, and I, I totally appreciate what you're saying, by the way, Solar, like this idea of like kind of shedding your Facebook follograph or shedding these other social graphs and holographs I, I think that's I think that's great and everything, but I think for me, putting together all these different people and starting to introduce people from all these different walks of my life was really exciting. That was just like through my personal lens. But I also think as far as the community goes, that was the whole objective in taking the role was like, wow, you know, this is an opportunity to to really not just kind of move through communities and but to actually bring them together because I because I've been a part of so many. Thank you for that question, Solar. Um, up next, you two know each other. <laughs> and the crazy thing about this is James was the first person we interviewed for Creators Time. So James, Andrews, what question do you have for Stephanie? You know, with all these different career paths that you've had, you know, what did you bring over from um, athletics into the business world? And how did it help you? I think that... Being an athlete, uh, especially a Division One athlete, you know, you, you're used to being certainly the best. And I think many of us are sort of used to be peacocking around and like maybe you're the best on your team. And then all of a sudden being on an all-star team <laughs> was a very different experience, which was I went from being a starter and breaking all the records and All-State and all these things to, you know, really not getting much play to playing time until my junior, senior year. And I think having to have enough humility and um you know combined with probably 
enough EQ to understand how one must adapt in role and pecking order and understanding and figure out different ways to contribute, even if it's not a way that you've been used to. And I think that, whew, I mean, even here at Clubhouse, like as our team has grown and my role have, you know, has, has sort of shifted or resonated, like I think I became you know, taking a bit, like swallow a bit of the pride and figure out like what's, what's needed and stepping into it. That's partially that like teamwork mentality and partially, like I said, just all of a sudden being amongst all stars and realizing that, you know, if everyone is excellent and everyone is talented, um, that you may have to play a different role. Um, I think that's probably a different way that I can answer it. Thank you. Well, you've got two more questions. Um, you know, Steph, we've got you for a little while longer. Uh, the next question is coming from Erica Simone. So, Steph, um, amazing career path. I'm wondering, uh, looking back now, because um, probably about the same age, what would you tell your younger self in the midst of the struggles and weirdness and the career transitions and things? Um, what would you tell your younger self uh, something that you think would help you out uh, then that you knew now, basically. Um, get weirder. Get weirder sooner. Like, I think I was so trying to be, who knows, like some image of either what I thought my parents wanted or what I thought would get me ahead or what I thought sounded good. or da -da. And, um, yeah, get weirder sooner. And when I meet people that were weird, in their teens and 20s. I love those people. Like, I always love those people. And I'm like, damn it, why wasn't I weirder sooner, you know? All right, we've got our last question of the day, and it's coming from Leah. Leah, what question do you have for Steph? All right, so my question is, I've been following you for a while, Steph, and I think your content is awesome. One of the things that I really admire about you is how free-spirited you are. I think that's friggin' awesome, and it really resonates with me. Um, However, there's a lot of people who live their life, they enjoy their life, and they share it online, but they, they fail to live in, the, live in the moment and just enjoy it because they're mm. snapping everything, right? So mm. I want to know how you balance being professional and living in the moment and still manage to engage online because I think there's, there's a fine line, um, and I think you do it very beautifully. I mean, I'm not going to sit here and pretend like, you know, I don't love a great instagram shot or like beautiful content but i think the reason maybe why uh is that it's, it's it was certainly one of the first places that i was able to express myself as a creative you know i've i've i would still not to this day say that i am i would say i'm a hobbyist photographer but i truly do enjoy um capturing at the right moment with people like one of my favorite things is being at a party and i've got tons of footage that unfortunately a lot of people will never let the light of day see because of the moments that i might have caught at a party but i really love catching sort of humanity um and so when i'm usually sort of on social media we'll use we'll call visual social media um it's usually to try to share like something that i think is beautiful or that i'm proud of a photo i took or maybe it's a photo of me that i that i really love but i think that the dirty little secret about me being sort of head of community at a social media company is that I very much uh, am a in real life kind of girl. Um, I, I deeply crave, you know, in real life human connection. I deeply crave um, sort of having experiences and not ever picking up my phone uh, to sort of take a photo. 
and so I think that the balance is really like, I have these two competing things in my life that I need both like, you know, meeting people and connecting people with people at scale, which the internet does so well for us. And also this really like strong desire to live viscerally and primally. And I think that because those two things are competing in my life, um, that is, they, they like force me to balance because it's like, I'm usually at loggerheads with both of them and one might sort of win out more than others. But, you know, I think, I think it's all, it's almost like a forced balance because they're at, they're at meeting at the head often. Thank you so much, Stephanie. We appreciate you. Thank you, everybody. Thank you guys so much. Honestly, this was a lot, a lot of fun. 